Uh, we're not doing counterterrorism in Somalia. That's, that's a misconception. What we're really doing is counterinsurgency. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Security Dilemma, a podcast by the John Quincy Adams Society. I'm Patrick C. Fox, joined once again by John Allen Gay as we have a conversation with Daniel DePetris. Daniel DePetris is a fellow at Defense Priorities, a syndicated foreign affairs columnist for the Chicago Tribune, and a writer for Newsweek and The Spectator. Through his weekly column, Dan DePetris synthesizes and explains complicated foreign policy issues for readers, and he has years of experience being an effective voice in explaining world politics. Our conversation today will cover many different topics, including American intervention in Mexico, Indian-Canadian relations, America's role in Somalia, and the state of the Abraham Accords. Join us for our conversation with Dan DePetris. Daniel DePetris, thank you so much for coming on Security Dilemma. You in the past have compared uh, the idea of an American war against cartels with American efforts to combat drug networks in Afghanistan and, and Colombia. I'm, I'm just curious, you know, because one of the factors that bolstered the Taliban uh, were close cultural networks, uh, you know, within Pashtun communities uh, in Afghanistan. How do you think Mexican populations might react to the idea of an American war against cartels? Well, look. I mean, there's the the Mexican people writ large. Uh, obviously, have have their own problems with cartels because they're, you know, the victims of cartel activity in their in their respective areas, whether it's extortion or uh, murder or disappearance, which is an ongoing problem throughout the country. Uh, that obviously doesn't necessarily equate to support for uh, you know a U.S. military operation against the cartels. And I think that a lot of that has to do with nationalism. Um, you know, the, the, the Mexican people, you know, if we're going to do be general here, they don't want to, they don't like foreign intervention in their affairs, period. Whether it's domestic politics, whether it's uh, economic issues or demographically, or cer- certainly uh, military, military force would, would uh, really be, send the wrong signal. Uh, to Mexicans across the political spectrum and ideological spectrum. I mean, they, I, I don't know if you guys have been following, but Mexican politics is a very divisive. It's a very divisive uh, stage right now. And um, you know, Manuel Manuel uh, Lopez Obrador Amlo for short. He's a very divisive president, and uh, his opponents are also divisive. The one thing they do agree on, however, is uh, you know opposition to any foreign military engagement on Mexican soil. Certainly. If if the Mexican government isn't cooperating with such an operation. On that topic of, of AMLO and his political, uh, his political legacy, how do you think uh, his political rhetoric and that of his, uh, who seems to, the person who seems to be a successor, Claudia Sheinbaum Pardo, how might that affect uh, American policy toward Mexico in the coming years? Well, it's, it's difficult to say. I mean, Scheinbaum is, is kind of AMLO's protege. You know, she, she was brought up into the, into his party, which by the way, he, he actually formed himself and kind of turned into this major juggernaut across the Mexican political establishment. It's, you know, his Morena party is essentially running the country now. They have a huge majority in, in parliament and, you know, the Mexican Congress. And uh, as far as we can tell, the 2024 elections in Mexico are going to be, um, you know, kind of a overwhelming victory for the Morena party and, and AMLO's successor, which would be Scheinbach. Um, it's difficult to say because Scheinbaum is a slightly more pragmatic, I feel like, than AMLO is. But, you know, she is also somebody who is very nationalistic and, 
like other Mexican politicians writ large. It's it's just obviously the United States government, whether it be Biden or Trump or whoever happens to you know be in the Oval Office in the White House, will have to take all those personalities into consideration uh, into the policymaking process, and they got to be very careful because if they make the wrong decision. Um, the bilateral relationship itself could be undermined, if not significantly ruptured. Yeah, I, I uh, th- that that bilateral relationship, from from what I'm, I've seen some from some polls, seems uh, pretty pretty contingent on American politics. I, I, the you know, Mexican perceptions about America seem uh, very divided between the perception of Democratic administrations and Republican administrations. Uh, how do you how do you think the outcome of a of uh, you know upcoming elections and the rhetoric that arises from elections happening at all could could affect uh, this kind of conflict? I feel like the the, the the relationship itself is relatively stable, uh, regardless of who happens to be in the White House. Uh, you know, we have a massive trade relationship with Mexico. That's not going to go away. That might even accelerate with all the friendshoring and offshoring we're seeing uh, vis-a-vis China over the next probably five to ten years. Security cooperation is always uh, an issue between the United States and Mexico, but uh, generally speaking, there are strong institutional uh, relationships between the two countries in terms of counter narcotics and, uh, you know, security writ large. It's uh, it's difficult to say when we're so far out, but you got to you got to think that all of this uh, rhetoric from um, you know Republican politicians on the debate stage last last night and first time a couple couple of weeks ago, it's about bombing Mexico or taking unilateral force measures against Mexico. Um, it's not going to it's not going to help. Certainly not. What's been confusing to me about all of this is it seems like at bottom, it's a proposal to win the war on drugs by using more force against a particularly hard to eradicate drug because it can be moved and shipped in such small volumes. Uh, it just seems like it doesn't add up. I, I'm curious, like, how is this even supposed to work? Well, I don't know, John. You, you, you're absolutely correct. I mean, it, this, we're talking about fentanyl here. You know, you don't need acres upon acres of land to grow this stuff. You can literally do this in the in the shed in the backyard. And you know, to make fentanyl, it, you don't need you know a degree in, in brain chemistry to understand how the, how this stuff is made. And uh, it's very easy to slip across the border. And you know, usually bombing whether it's whether it's bombing uh, cartel fentanyl laboratories. Um, I, I feel like a lot of politicians think these are massive structures that you can actually target from the air, when in reality, these things are hidden in very densely populated neighborhoods or remote areas, and they're very hard to locate. And even if you do happen to locate these facilities and destroy them, uh, guess what? The cartels will just build another facility. So this is really uh, the definition of a whack-a-mole strategy. Um, if you go down this road, where does it stop? Yeah, it, it brings to mind the uh, air campaign against drugs uh, several years before we left Afghanistan, where we had some of our highest end aircraft dropping very expensive munitions on very early stage opium processing facilities in a country with absolutely massive, at the time, uh, opium production and very well-established smuggling networks and very few alternatives for the local population to growing 
uh, a cash crop like opium. Like it, it just, it just didn't add up. And the thing that seems to have reduced the uh, opium production in Afghanistan is actually the Taliban takeover. Uh, and it, you know, it was not our multi-decade uh, efforts done at various intensity over time, but multi-decade efforts to have a war on drugs in Afghanistan. I, I guess I, I am curious, like, why isn't the Mexican state taking this issue more seriously? I mean, and how much control do they even have? Well, that, that's always an issue across uh, administrations where, you know, if, if you read various estimates, approximately 30 to 35 percent of Mexico is ungovernable or in an area where the Mexican government just does not have a, a very solid presence. So it might be unwillingness, it might be a lack of, pol- of political will, but I'm, I'm guessing a lot of it is a lack of capacity on the part of the Mexican security forces, who, who after all are, uh, you know, um, they have their hands full uh, fighting. I, I think the latest estimate I read was about 150 gangs uh, and a, two major cartels, of course, the Sinaloa cartel and the uh, New Generation cartel. And, um, you know, they just don't have the manpower or the resources. They spend about 1% of their GDP on defense. And, you know, John, I know you're big on the burden sharing thing in Europe, as I am. And we, we always complain about the Europeans not spending 2% of GDP on their defense. And, Mexico, you know, Mexico is half that. So whatever it is, lack of capacity, lack of political will could be a combination of both. But regardless of what it is, uh, unilateral force on the part of the United States is not going to help the problem. At best, it will be a short-term solution. At worst, it will just compound the problem and and, uh, result in sort of a symbolic maneuver on the part of Washington. On, on that sort of topic of cartels and how they interact with the United States, uh, in your recent Newsweek piece, you described the only path toward legal claims of American self-defense against cartels as violent and coordinated cartel attack on American citizens. Um, you also noted that this has, by some definitions, already happened with the cartel kidnapping and killing of several American citizens, uh, a group I think called Scorpions Group, you know, uh, but they actually turned in the people who they considered responsible uh, uh, to justice. So, you know, th- this this relative fear of American and state reprisal seems to uh, be an important moderating influence, good behavior from the cartels relative to being cartels uh, uh, to avoid escalation. What do you think this story indicates about how American policymakers should think about the issue of cartels? Like how can cartels be influenced to acting in ways that are, that mitigate harm to Americans? Well, that's a very tough question because ultimately, you know, cartels are a money-making organization. They care about terrain. They care about controlling resources. They care about their bottom line. Ultimately, it's it's a business enterprise with a criminal component attached to it, right? And in some cases in Mexico, uh, some of these cartels are actually serving as as de facto governments in these areas. Um, But one thing that's terrible for business is to target Americans. And, you know, the cartels, the fact that the Scorpion Group kind of took it upon themselves to gather up these these shooters or these criminals that targeted the American citizens along the border and essentially handed them over to Mexican law enforcement tells you a lot about the influence of of money within the cartel operation. They do not want to to, uh, jeopardize uh, 
any it, they don't want to jeopardize their financial uh, operation for understandable reasons. Um, they need the money to pay off gunmen. They need money to pay off the population or to entice the population to, to leave their, their operations alone. Um, and they need money for recruiting. So my sense is, at least from that specific experience that we saw several months ago, um, you know, money can be a moderating influence. And we don't like to talk about that because it's sort of contradictory to what we're led to believe. But in terms of cartel operations and how they think and how they uh, operate, um, it, it's, it's more true than not. The idea that money can be a moderating influence is, is an interesting point because we've definitely heard it in a whole lot of contexts outside of talking about, you know, cartels and this, this area of policymaking that kind of treads this, you know, gray line between domestic and international policy. Um, it, it reminds me specifically of one of our uh, first episodes with Dr. Van Jackson, where one of the things that he essentially said was that Chinese economic prosperity plays a role in how China might decide whether or not to use military force. So I, I you know, along that similar logic, I guess I'm wondering um, if money is the thing stopping cartels from being more violent and possibly kicking off a long and disastrous conflict with America, disastrous for both sides, um, what events could cause Mexican cartels to stop de-escalation and potentially launch these new violent uh, coordinated attacks on American citizens, even on American soil? That's a very good question. And if I'm going to be completely frank, I don't have a great answer to it. But I do know what will make the situation worse, and that is going after these uh, cartel operations unilaterally. Uh, there's, one, there's one way of doing it, and that's to, in full cooperation with the Mexican government. And throughout history, um, particularly when you're speaking of the Sinaloa cartel it, back in the, within their heartland in the Northwest, um, the Mexican government in that area is perfectly willing to assist the United States in uh, combating some of these groups. Uh, if you do it unilaterally, the, Me uh, the, Me the Mexican government is not only going to disapprove of it, but they're probably going to limit their whatever cooperation that they provide to the United States right now, which is limited. Um, you know, all these extraditions, these high-profile extraditions that we're seeing with you know El Chapo Guzman several years ago, and now his son. Um, a video of Guzman, I believe, two weeks ago was extradited to the United States for trial and prosecution. You're going to see those types of moves by the Mexican government probably dwindle or maybe even be eliminated in retaliation to something that, you know, would be viewed by the Mexican government as a complete disrespect of Mexican sovereignty through whether it's U.S. airstrikes or in introducing special forces into, into Mexican territory, which a lot of these... Uh, a lot of the Republican candidates uh, today are, are advocating for. So it's, it's a good question. I don't know the answer, but um, it could get a lot worse if we do the wrong thing, I guess is my point. To, to, to hit another issue that, uh, you know, uh, on the North American continent, because so much of uh, foreign policy, we're talking about areas of the world that some realists are wondering if are, you know, even uh, related to American interests. But, you know, Canada, that, that matters. That's that's they border us. Uh, there, there seems to be some tension uh, among realists about uh, interpreting the friction between India and Canada over the killing of Hardeep Singh uh, Nijar. 
uh, on one hand, some realists seem to prioritize relations with India as a way to balance uh, balance China, whereas others focus on strong relations with the North American partner. Where where do you sort of fall on this? Like like how do you think America should react to um, the uh, the controversy going on north of the border? Yeah, this is a very, very difficult situation. And the, the administration is a very tough spot here because on the one side, you have Canada, which is obviously one of America's oldest allies. On the other, you have India, which is, you know, geo, geopolitically is an increasingly um, important country in South Asia, Asia in general. And four successive U.S. administrations have, have spent a lot of diplomatic capital and time kind of building this bilateral relationship up into something that is pretty much a strategic partnership right now. And I think the administration right now is doing the right thing, which is essentially <laughs> trying to walk a fine line between those two extremes. Do you go? They don't want to. They don't want to be uh, supporting Canada one hundred percent. They don't want to be supporting India one hundred percent because they want positive relationships with both countries. So you know what the administration is doing is essentially keeping quiet and issuing these generic statements of, uh, you know, we want we want Canada's investigation to proceed. Uh, thoroughly, and we want India to cooperate with Canada's investigation. I think that's the right, the right, uh, right tone to take. It, it is interesting, though. Um, it's a little awkward for the United States too, if you think about it, because you know President Biden makes a big deal about universal values, norms, and, and ideals, and uh, respect for the so-called rules-based international order. And then you have a strategic partner like India allegedly uh, dispatching essentially government agents on Canadian soil to execute a dissident. Um, you know, the, the Indians obviously refer to Najjar as a terrorist, but we'll, we'll see. It's just, it's a very awkward thing for the administration because on the one hand they want, they keep talking about the rules-based order and the respect for the, how it's extremely uh, important to respect all these all these rules and then they have a partner who's disrespecting the rules so blatantly yeah I I often think of that Donald Trump line uh, to to rephrase it India could walk in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and people would still <laughs> love them like you know the United States has been determined and a lot of countries because it, it was notable that the other five eyes countries uh, you know the UK New Zealand Australia, also have not been super out front on this, even though those countries have a relatively high level of intelligence cooperation and seem to have had communication about this Indian activity. I mean, do you think that this U.S.-India romance uh, is ever going to be requited uh, by the Indians? Because they often seem to... uh, like having us as a deeper partner, but not to want to go as far as we do. Oh, for sure. I think there's a huge disconnect between what U.S. officials want out of the relationship and what the Indians are willing to actually provide in the relationship. So, you know, we, we have ha- we have a habit back here in, in New York and Washington, D.C., of thinking that everything is an alliance, how the U.S. and India are... Um, improving their bilateral ties to the extent that it's actually reaching alliance-like status. And as you both know, Indians are very allergic to alliances of any, any sort. You know, they're very pragmatic um, across whether, whether it's, I don't care what Indian prime minister you're talking about. They're, they're pragmatic. They're very self-interested. 
Um, you know, they, they obviously want to improve relationships across the board with Washington, but that doesn't necessarily mean going outsourcing their China policy to Washington. You know, they have, they have their own interests in the region and they're not willing to do certain things that the U.S. probably like them to do. So there's a huge disconnect, I think, between the two sides, even if they sort of paper over, paper it over in, in public statements and, and joint communiques that we saw most recently with, you know, the state visit when Modi came over to D.C. To, to shift a little bit to an area that India is is perhaps becoming a little bit more involved with, but I, I you know, I, I remember you've written some really interesting articles about uh, Somalia in the past. I mean, I, I remember even citing them in my Marcellus policy paper. Um, you've in the past described American policy in Somalia as almost subsidizing counter-revolutionary efforts by the Somali government. You know, uh, America underwriting um, the internal politics of Somalia. Uh, but literally today, I'm afraid I haven't gotten to read it yet. There was a uh, piece in Foreign Affairs demanding a strategy for America and Somalia, a redesign of our approach. What do you think America's goal in Somalia should be as, you know, that war hits, what, year 35 of a civil war? Yeah, I mean, we we need to keep our goal in Somalia as limited as possible. And I I think that's, you know, the core security interest we have in that country is to make sure that organizations like al-Shabaab don't have the capacity to hit the United States in a, in a hard way. And um, the way we're doing it is essentially, uh, we're not doing counterterrorism in Somalia. That's, that's a misconception. What we're really doing is counterinsurgency. We're, we're acting as Somalia's Air Force, essentially. You know, U.S. Air Force pilots are, are dual-hatting as Somali Air Force pilots. And a, a lot of the strikes that are occurring in Somalia today, really over the last several years, have been close support operations. Um either to bail out Somali troops on the ground who are about to be ambushed or to essentially, um, you know, assist with their ground ops against Al-Shabaab positions in the central part of the country or uh, the south part of the country. So, you know, we have a habit of biting off more than we can chew. And that's, you know, we've gotten in problems repeatedly in the in these countries, weak countries like Somali who have no central governments, or if they do have a central government, uh, is confined to the capital city, you know. So uh, in terms of Somalia, the U.S. needs to be very realistic in what it, what it can achieve there. And I think the, the record over the last 30-plus years is we can't achieve much. Um, what we can do is essentially what we're doing at a lower scale, which is ensuring that, you know, al-Shabaab is, is weakened enough in capability that it doesn't lash out at direct U.S. interests, particularly the U.S. homeland. And, uh, you know, thus far, we've, we've succeeded in that. Uh, how much that can be credited with the bombing cam- campaign that we've initiated over the last 10 plus years, it's hard to say. So how how much uh, do you see al-Shabaab uh, per se as a group that intends to strike the United States or U.S. targets? You know, because especially... If you're talking about a standard of uh, we need to kind of degrade their capabilities, keep them below a certain level, uh, that does entail us fighting them in some amount, which makes us their enemy. And so I guess my question is, are they our enemy without that? Because there have certainly been arguments advanced that some of the proto-Al-Shabaab movements, the Union of Islamic Courts and, and groups like that, uh, were not 
really interested in the kind of international terrorism that we're concerned about. Right. And that, that's a, that's a big issue where, you know, it's, it's a huge mistake to lump in terrorist groups with local or regional aims, uh, lump them in with, you know, Osama, you know, the Osama bin Laden version of Al Qaeda with transnational aims. I mean, that, that's, that's a very good recipe for open-ended conflict and, and, um, an extreme stress of our, of our resources. Uh, I, I don't know to the extent to which Al-Shabaab is interested in attacking the United States. It seems to me the interest is very limited, if not non-existent. Um, if they do attack U.S. targets like they did several years ago in Kenya, it's because we have an air base in Kenya. You know, it's an easy target of opportunity, and they understand that uh, – the U.S. base in Kenya is being used as a as a logistical support base for operations in Somalia. So it's sort of an extension of their insurgency against the Somali government. It's an interesting uh, case, you know, how much is Somalia, how much is al-Shabaab an insurgent group and how much is it a transnational terrorist group, which is, I think, the question that you're asking, John. I, th- I would aim, I would aim probably a insurgent group. You know, their main aim is to displace the Somali government and replace, replace them with what essentially is a more extreme version of what we saw in the Islamic Courts Union back in, I think it was 2006. Um, you know, the, the, US ha- the U.S. needs to be mindful of what Somalia's, what's, uh, what al-Shabaab's ultimate objectives are. And if, if they mistaken them as some sort of transnational group akin to al-Qaeda in Afghanistan in the 90s, uh, we could be looking at another situation where we're in Somalia for two, three decades. So it's, it's very important to distinguish between terrorist groups. Uh, not all terrorist groups are created equal. Not all terrorist groups require uh, an equal amount of U.S. Uh, attention or resources. That's a very important point to make. One of our most recent episodes was talking about uh, the Sahel with Dr. Alex Thurston, uh, a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute. H- how, how do you, what, what differences do you see between the, um, what seems to me like a somewhat simmering uh, East African terrorist uh, organization and the, uh, the, 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 the terrorist networks that we're seeing in West Africa? It's, it's difficult for me to say because I'm not an expert in the Sahel, but, I, but I, I will say that it seems a lot of these, a lot of these groups are feeding off of local dynamics. Um, so a lot of them are tribal related. A lot of them have to do with uh, just complete dysfunction politically. Uh, it seems like these, these governments in general in the region, whether we're talking about Mali or Burkina Faso or they just have very, very limited writ over their territory, and that obviously provides these local insurgencies. I will call them insurgencies rather than transnational terrorist groups. Uh, these they provide these insurgencies with the ability to kind of create their mini their own mini state within the national border, and you know tax the population and, and essentially serve as de, a de facto government. Um, you know the U.S. has been. As far as I'm as, under, as far as I understand, the U.S. is not taking kinetic action per se. It's it's morally a surveillance, uh, you know, ISR mission within the North Africa and, and West Africa and the Sahel. The French obviously took kinetic action numerous times over the last decade. But uh, you know, this is this is something. This is another area of the world where the United States needs to kind of understand the local dynamics and and the uh, relationships between the groups and the capacity of these governments to fight the groups. 
um, it's important not to overreact and, and think that every just because there's a terrorist group operating Burkina Faso means that the U.S. needs to deploy troops there or or to launch airstrikes there. Because that that could turn them into transnational organizations. You know, you never know. So, Dan, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and the United States have been talking for months about bringing Saudi Arabia into the Abraham Accords. The latest versions of these proposals reportedly include a U.S.-Saudi defense treaty modeled on the kinds of security pacts we have with countries like Korea and Japan, alongside an agreement to let the Saudis enrich uranium on their own soil under some level of U.S. supervision. What do you think about this proposal? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's asinine. To, to put a to put a short word on it, it, it it's it, we're essentially bribing the Saudis with extremely um, significant U.S. concessions in order to get them to do something that is probably in their own interest anyway, which is to normalize a relationship with Israel. Um, you know, the, Biden keeps talking about how we're sort of moving on from the Middle East and reorienting U.S. foreign policy to the Asia Pacific. Seems you don't have to be you know. Henry Kissinger to understand that signing a defense treaty with Saudi Arabia is a great way of sucking more resources into the region when we should, in all actuality, be limiting resources in the region and sort of doing what the president outlined earlier in his term, which is to uh, deprioritize the Middle East in, in U.S. grand strategy and and uh, focus on limited objectives in, in that region, which seems to me is uh, you know preventing transnational groups from attacking the United States, uh, ensuring that there's a stable oil supply in the, in the world market. And that's pretty much it. You know, I mean, every, everything else is, 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 uh, too granular, quite frankly, to, uh, to pay much attention to. And I, I, I just, I just don't understand what the administration believes it can get out of this. Uh, I know what Israel gets out of it. I know what Saudi Arabia gets out of it. I just don't understand what the United States got, gets out of a deal like this. And, uh, you know, it, it, if you have any clues, please do, please tell me. Please educate me on that. So my understanding is that the kind of dialogue, the way it's being sold, uh, both within the administration and, and beyond, uh, is all about China. That they're like, hey, mm-hmm. we're in a strategic competition with China. This... Part of this deal is going to be restrictions on how the Saudis deal with China. Therefore, we are excluding China from getting too close with these key oil producers. And then the second part of the rationale is that by making this commitment, we'll somehow be stabilizing the region in a way that will let us draw back which is, is kind of the argument I've made in favor of previous iterations of the Abraham Accords, which is you build, if you're concerned about Iran trying to take over the region uh, and you know being kind of a heavyweight player, you want to have coordination between the countries that are most concerned about Iran, coordination that's better than the coordination that happens now. Uh, and open, stable relations would help that. But that was not including a U.S. defense deal. So what have you? What do you make of this argument that this deal will exclude China from the region 
and enable the United States to draw down by cementing a balancing coalition against Iran. Well, on the China angle, um, it's just it's just ridiculous. Anybody who understands China or understands how the Saudi Arabia, how the Saudis react or operate um, understands that they're extremely self-interested actors. They have a gigantic trade relationship with the Chinese. More so, I, I believe the latest numbers are the U.S. Uh, the uh, Saudi-China relationship. The value is about double what the U.S. Saudi uh, U.S. Saudi trade relationship is, and to think that they're going to throw away their relationship with China in general um, at a time when you know current Prince Mohammed bin Salman is essentially. Uh, trying to diversify Saudi foreign policy and rely less on the United States is just, it strikes, strikes me as just completely beyond the pale. Um, it, it won't limit Chinese uh, influence in the Middle East. And quite frankly, if China wants more influence in the Middle East, let them, let them get it. I mean, the UN, United States, what, what has U.S. influence in the Middle East gotten us over the last 30 years other, other than trouble and, and the preventive wars that have lasted for far too long and degraded U.S. credibility overseas and, and U.S. standing overseas and U.S. power. So if the Chinese think they can do any better, I, I say let them, let, them, let them try, you know, because chances are they probably won't. Um, in terms of a balancing coalition, I don't think the Arab states need the United States to balance Iran. I mean, if you just look at the metrics in terms of uh, econ economic metrics, military metrics, um, the GCC states, plus, you know, Egypt and, and Jordan, and I guess you can lump Israel into, into the equation, vastly, uh, is vastly more than what the Iranians have in terms of, of, of their GDP, in terms of their technological prowess, in terms of their military resources. So, you know, the simple fact of the matter is they don't need the United States for a sustainable balancing coalition. The reason there's no sustainable balancing coalitions because the GCC states uh, can't get their act together and seem to work with each other. It's not because of any absence of, of U.S. power in the region. Yeah. So I guess someone, you know, from that area might say, well, hey, if we don't sort of, if we can't sort out these problems now, you know, some of these intra GCC, you know, Saudi Qatar, Emirates Qatar type disputes, uh, the long problems with trying to establish an integrated air defense system in the region. If we can't sort out these problems, we're not going to be able to coordinate well enough to build a balancing coalition. Ergo, the United States, if it wants to have balance in the region, needs to do the work. Uh, what do you think of that? Well, that's that's coming from the that's the Gulf Arab perspective, right? That doesn't necessarily mean the United States has to accept that perspective, which I, I view as as sort of wrong. I mean, what's in the interest of the Gulf Arab states is certainly certainly doesn't equate to what's in the interest of the United States. And the United States has to look at the region through um, its respective minimal interests in the region, not not what the Gulf Arab states want at any given time. I mean, I'm sure the Saudis and, and the Qataris and the Emiratis would love to have defense treaties with the United States uh, for understandable reasons. You know, I, I, if I was in their shoes, I'd do the same thing. That doesn't necessarily mean the United States has, has to, uh, you know, accept their demands. Um, because if they did, let, let's be honest, this is not a mutual defense treaty. This is the United States essentially picking up the tab for their for their security and their defense in perpetuity. That's that's what we're talking about here. 
what's also remarkable, just another layer to this is that the Gulf states are often not as anti-Iranian as they seem to want us to be, you know, that they're still, you still regularly see U.S. sanctions designations hitting businesses in the UAE for doing business with Iran. Very frequently, when periods of high tension between the United States and Iran occur, you will see diplomatic outreach efforts uh, between the Gulf states and the Iranians. They'll fly to Tehran and, and have talks. And in fact, there was this recent uh, China broker deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. I mean, there were photos going around just the other day of uh, celebrations of the Saudi National Day at their embassy, which has reopened in Tehran. Uh, you know, so it seems like the the Gulfies are much more realistic about dealing with their neighbor than we are. One of the cases that people have been making tied to this proposed deal is more or less that it's a form of ultra realistic behavior on our part that we are that we have to deal with the gulf states because they are you know economically important uh that there that there's going to be some kind of relationship with them so why not have the kind of relationship that's being proposed what do you make of that I'm all for having a relationship with the Gulf states. You know, I I, I would love to have a re- positive relationship with every country on the planet. I think if you ask anybody, any American on the street, they would agree with me. But there's a big difference between having mutually beneficial relationships and then a relationship that completely is overweighed on behalf of the other party. And that's essentially what a U.S. defense treaty or a treaty-like arrangement with Saudi Arabia, for instance, would be. It would be a huge win for the Saudis. But again, I'm not sure it would be much of a win at all for the United States, other than maybe Biden could use it as a political talking point during the campaign. But in terms of all the geostrategic and geopolitical explanations that have been offered over the last two months uh, in support of something like this, they just strike me as either wrong or increasingly desperate. Um, so look, if, if I was, if I was, a member of the Biden team, and I was involved in these negotiations, I would probably just <laughs> tell the Saudis straight up that, um, you know, if you want to normalize relations with Israel, great. You know, we're not going to stand your way. In fact, we advocate for it. But we're not going to be paying an obscenely high price in order to get it. Uh, that's, I think, the op- that, that's, that's the bottom line that U.S. negotiators should be taking here. And I'm concerned that, you know, the folks that are leading these talks, uh, Brett McGurk and Jake Sullivan, are, are not doing that. They're not delivering that message. Uh, it seems to me that they're comfortable with uh, some sort of a NATO-style defense treaty to get this normalization deal over the finish line. And I, th- I think that's a huge mistake. Yeah, and it's it's been really striking because I've watched these negotiations and the the rumors and reporting coming out about them from the beginning and what's been proposed has seemed to change over time because right now initially they had said nato style and then people said well that's what the saudis want it's more like article 4.5 meaning instead of article 5 of the north atlantic uh, treaty the washington treaty uh which basically is a defense guarantee article 4 is a consultation guarantee when there's a security threat 
Uh, so it seems to be that they were looking at something between that. And now they're saying uh, modeled on the East Asian alliances, which if you read those treaties, they are very similar to the U.S. treaty, uh, to, to the NATO treaty. Uh, and, and so it's a it's a very confusing evolution that this has taken. It seems like our negotiating position has gotten weaker. I'm not even sure that some of these interlocutors uh, on the U.S. side actually see it as a weaker deal when us uh, when we're making a, a bigger commitment, because I don't think they see it as as innately a bad uh, a bad thing for the United States to have a permanent commitment to Saudi Arabia. And then the other thing is, like you read those treaties with the East Asian countries uh, and there's a whole lot in there uh, or there's not a lot in there. And there's a whole lot in there that we would want in there for this kind of deal. You know, we would expect to see if we're getting if we're making this deal in order to get the Saudis to do Abraham Accord stuff to normalize with Israel, you would expect to make the treaty conditional on Saudi performance of those commitments. Like, hey, is there an open, active Saudi embassy uh, inside Israel? Uh, you know, is the relationship active on a military to military basis? Is it explicit, et cetera? Similarly, you would expect to see conditions on Chinese influence. Uh, you'd expect to say, okay, like, are they trading oil in renminbi? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, the, d- the defense pact is not operative and we're not coming to your aid. You don't see that on the nuclear angle either because there's the nuclear layer to this deal of us giving them, uh, you know, this kind of, uh, you might even say, to use a phrase the Iranians use, right to enrich, uh, you know, that, they, that they're complying with whatever international nuclear standard we try to get them uh, to be bound by. And MBS has explicitly said on national U.S. television twice, uh, including once in English just the other day, uh, that if Iran gets a bomb, Saudi's getting a bomb too, that they need it. So there is like an explicit threat to proliferate, which even in the case of the Iranians, they haven't explicitly said, oh, this huge nuclear program that has had all this weird stuff going on, it's for, it's maybe for a bomb. Like it, it's, it's really unfathomable that there aren't these conditions apparently being baked into the deal. And also like, the background assumption here, if it's all about China, is, you know, China is, uh, you know, there's disputes about how strong China is, how strong it's going to be in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And so if we make a permanent defense commitment to the Saudis with the with the idea that we're keeping out expanding Chinese influence, and then Chinese influence stops expanding everywhere because they kind of level off or start to collapse a bit, which seems perfectly plausible. Uh, this deal stays operative. And so we're just on the hook for the Saudis forever, even though the it, the problem we tried to solve went away. I don't know. I, I'm curious what your reaction is here, because I'm just amazed that the administration is proposing this and that they seem to want to take this into 2024 as their big foreign policy win to talk about in front of the American people. Like, hey, we made a defense commitment to the House of Saud. Yeah, it's a very strange, uh, we live in like a, it's like a house of mirrors. Like, I don't know, uh, I don't know what they're thinking behind the scenes, but I, I will say this. I do, all of this is troubling and I agree with hundred percent what you said, John. I do think, however, uh, we shouldn't overreact to the probability of this deal actually 
happening. And this is why I say that. The way the structure of this agreement is essentially a big tent. In other words, it's not just the Israelis and the Saudis. It's also us and it's also the Palestinian Authority. And every, there's, there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, specific issues linked underneath this gigantic tent, right? So the Palestinian Authority wants assurances from the Saudis that the Israelis will provide them certain concessions, whether it's territorial concessions in the West Bank, whether it's uh, greater economic opportunities. Um, you know, the Saudis want to make sure the Palestinians are okay with them normalizing relations with Israel. The Israelis want the Saudis to bring the Palestinians along into this agreement, right? The Americans want the Saudis to push the Palestinians to cooperate with the Israelis. So there's a lot of threads here. And the way this deal is structured, you pull one thread, the entire thing could easily, easily collapse. So and that, if, if you're somebody like myself that views a, uh, you know, um, a defense treaty or a defense-related alliance with the Saudis as a terrible mistake, a terrible U.S. foreign policy blunder, there's some hope in this deal collapsing just by the way it's structured. Um, that could change, you know, if we get to the point where uh, MBS and, and Biden or McGurk are in a room and kind of make the conclusion that, you know, there's just too many things going on here to make the to make the deal a success. They, they may lower their expectations. We don't know. But from all the reporting that I've read, uh, it's sort of like, you know, everybody's using the prospect of normalization to further their own respective interests. You know, the Saudis want to add a nuclear component to it. They want the defense treaty with the United States. The United States wants the Saudis to push the Palestinians, Israelis to resume some sort of peace process. So there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And for me, that, that's actually a good thing, because if, if, if it collapses, that means we don't have to defend the House of Saud for the next hundred years. So I'm fine with that, you know? Yeah, it, it's unfortunate. <laughs> to be frank. It's unfortunate, because like I said, like I've supported the Abraham Accords in principle, and the previous versions were not like this. It was, hey, here's how to be friends, not let's get married forever and you and you get all of our resources and uh you know that this crazy deal like it's it's like if you saw a nice used car and you need a car and you spent like two million dollars on it like it's it's a good thing that is being bought at an insane uh price and like you said i mean this this gets to my worry it's this house of cards and I think it continues to be something of a house of cards if it goes through. And I think the United States being a country with rule of law, with a pretty decent culture of like, hey, if we make a treaty, we should keep it. You know, we're dealing with, uh, you know, the Israelis who have a much more dynamic political system. I mean, it's a parliamentary system uh, with no written constitution and a lot of arguments right now about what how their political system should even be structured. And then Saudi Arabia, which is basically one guy, like it, it, it seems like a very unstable foundation for a deal if we are not going to be making it extremely performance based. Like, I think that even if we make it, it could fall apart and we'd be left holding the bag. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a risk and it's 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 a, it's a reason why all of us here have to in the restraint community have to monitor this these negotiations like a hawk because if there's something that 
happens to be, uh, you know, if the United States pays a price that is, I think I made the metaphor where, you know, the United States is essentially mortgaging its house to buy a nice pair of sneakers. You know, it's, it's nice yeah. to have a flashy pair of sneakers, but if you're, if you're, you know, sitting on the street homeless without a house over a roof over your head, how much do the sneakers really cost? You know, that's essentially what the Israel normalization deal is. It's a, it's a, it's a fancy pair of sneakers. And the U.S. is willing to mortgage its house, which in this case is a defense guarantee for Saudi Arabia, to get that uh, to, to get to, to get that agreement. It's just not weigh it. Do a simple cost benefit analysis. It's not hard, you know. <laughs> weigh the cost of the deal. Weigh the benefits of the deal. If when you do that in a partial way, I don't see how anybody could conclude that the benefits outweigh the costs. And as long as that as long as that is the case. The United States should just walk away. You know, the Israelis and the Saudis have an interest, a respective interest to improve their own relationship by themselves. They will get to their they will get to that point on their own. You know, we just had the Israeli tourism minister go to Saudi Arabia last year, uh, last week. Or no, it was yesterday, yesterday, actually. And it was the first time an Israeli minister set foot on Saudi, Saudi soil for a public meeting. You know, so that's a big deal. The, these countries are clearly moving towards each other in a, in, a, in a positive way. And I'm not sure why the U.S. would sort of, you know, give something, give so much in order to kind of accelerate a process that maybe a couple of years down the line might, might be finalized by the Saudis and the Israelis by themselves. Dan DePetris, thank you so much for coming on Security Dilemma. Thanks, John. Thanks, Patrick. Appreciate it. Security Dilemma is a podcast by the John Quincy Adams Society. To learn more about our programs, visit our website at jqas.org. Remember to rate and review on your podcast app and join us every Tuesday for new episodes of Security Dilemma.